Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music was by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up with Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. Usually after recording a podcast episode, Renal and I would quickly say goodbye to our guests so we could get on with our Saturday afternoon activities. When we recorded our episode with Jennifer Crystal Chen, the three of us ended up staying in the Zoom room for well over an hour. When listening back, I realized the richness of the conversation. Jennifer has a unique theory of change when it comes to righting systemic wrongs and harms experienced by BIPOCs and true co-conspirators in the documentary community. It was a following discussion between myself, Jennifer, and Ronell that planted the seed for Ronell to plan and moderate a panel at the International Documentary Association Skinny Road 2022 entitled Collateral Damage and Institutional Repair. While Ronell and I both loved the work we did at the IDA, it was unfortunately hampered by a work culture rooted in white supremacy and patriarchy. Post-traumatic nonprofit syndrome is a real thing. And I, like many in similar organizations, became the quote-unquote problem woman of color. For more on this, check out the graphic on COCO, the Center for Community Organizations website, created by Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence, which is linked on this episode's website. Renell's panel was made up of Sarah Ty Black, critic, programmer, and curator, Gemma Desai, the creator of This Work Isn't For Us, Cynthia Gill, programmer, Lolita Krishna, producer and director, and Rachel Pronger, curator and producer. Simba Bebe of the European Film Mark and the Caribbean Film Academy introduced me to Jimmy Tsai's work, This Work Isn't For Us, in 2020. It was her writing, along with a list of demands from the former and current BIPOC employees of Indie Grits and those of the BIPOC theater artists, as well as the mentorship and community of support I found at Art Equity and the help of my therapist that really helped me to find my voice and demand the changes I needed. My hope is that this episode would give BIPOCs and white co-conspirators committed to anti-racism the strength to advocate for themselves and the filmmakers they serve. And in the spirit of this sermon and good mental health, the song for this episode is Kenny Rogers' The Gambler. Because in the documentary nonprofit space, you need to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. All right, Renelle, come on back, girl. The point that you made that you hope that everybody is on the same path as far as, you know, they want good and that we're working in a space that, you know, where you think people are like-minded, but they're... they're no, we've had, Jennifer and I had this discussion. So this, I'm, not, I'm not saying everybody is. I'm, I'm pessimistic and Jennifer's optimistic, but she has. I a, love your optimism. <laughs> I don't. I don't feel like everyone is a social activist, but I and, and fully aware and informed. But yeah. I think why would you bother working in documentary where it's incredibly difficult to make any kind of income? The work is really difficult to complete. If you want to make films, there's, you know, a lot of other things you could do that are much more lucrative and rewarding. The basic concept is people care about something, right? 
And and it's that caring that overrides their desire to just make things to make a lot of money in film. Because you could honestly, I mean, you could go down the narrative path and do, you know, a lot better, you know? There's no reason to make documentaries except yes, for you but care. you know what? I think with coming from, and especially when it comes to the, comes to industry folks, and it's, you know, predominantly white women, I think that there's like this, this, this social credibility that they're buying for themselves too. Yeah. And yeah. it's not, it's not necessarily coming from an altruistic place and it's, you know, it's really performative, you and know, that's okay. They're like, it. they're like, they're at like, no, one no, one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I see them as like, okay, if you have different like levels, right. They're at like one oh one. One oh one is do it because it makes you look good. Cause you want to be a good, a good person. Right. Yeah, that's like one oh one. The majority of those people are in positions of power, like, and they don't want to grow and they think that they're like again they're performing right and so yeah. and they think that the performance is enough and yeah. then uh, which I, is why we which is why we have to have these conversations right yeah because because to protect them from these conversations is our part so their ignorance and their avoiding the issue and their performativeness is their problem right but our problem yeah. is that we're free to actually say what is really going on that is actually our problem you know and I understand that people have different positions in the industry. Some people don't want to get like blacklisted. They're afraid for like they're not or funding. You get fired for saying or fired. Hey, this or, yeah. is going on. You get fired. Exactly. So. Exactly. I understand that that's a risk. And so, but I think for those of us who don't have that the same consequences, right, to our careers, we have to we have to actually start talking about what's really going on. And and there's this unconscious dynamic. I heard about this person. It was really interesting. He was talking about like how to have you know, conversations when it's like a racial dynamic, a power dynamic, a gender dynamic and stuff. He said, there's always responsibilities. He's like, the responsibility of the person who has more power is to listen more, right? Listen more, understand, like stop putting forward what you have all the time. Yeah. He's like, he's like the responsibility of the people who have less power is to tell the truth. Stop protecting the people in power by making them feel comfortable. Yeah. Tell the truth. Tell your story. And he's like, don't do it in in an environment or situation. He's like, use your common sense, right? If you're in like whatever, you know, a bar in the South with a bunch of KKK members, like that's not the place to do it, right? So it's like, use your common sense. Like, don't say it in like, you know, a far right rally, right? Where they're like, whatever, burning crosses and shit. Like, just don't do stuff that's like in the wrong environment. But in the environments where you can take risk, you have to take risks to be more honest. Because even the people who do want to do something... They can't do something if they don't know what the problem is. And, and another thing too, I think by one thing is that that BIPOCs and co-conspirators need to be real, more real about is that real fear of retaliation. Absolutely, like, absolutely. I think we need to be vocal about like. So if we speak up, this is what might happen. This is what has happened in the past. So I think we do need to, we need to be more vocal, I think, about the consequences that we face. I think, yeah. you know, what's been really disappointing, and in particularly when it comes to Tony and Tony, what happened to Tony, is this who gets to be believed and, like, who gets to be listened to, regardless of, and, and regardless of when you're speaking to who, as far as, like, when you're speaking that truth to somebody. Like who they even are and who it, who they're willing to believe. It's been really shocking, particularly, you know, I mean, with folks that you work with, Tony, who who don't 
offer the same that you would think would be on the same fucking page on this. And like, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And we had talked about, you know, including a little bit of that podcast, but I think it's really important for white people to understand that there is a tremendous level of fear that, that BIPOC space that comes around the, the retaliation that happens. And so, and yeah. around the the demonizing, the blacklisting, the retaliation, the, you know, not believing the saying this person is a problem, all this stuff, which is exactly why people don't want to speak up, which then means they don't really hear or know what's happening, which then means they can't actually solve the problems in the industry. So it's this like circular problem that happens right. um, because and, of that fear. And this workshop, this series of workshops I'm doing with Resma Megna about symbolic social social abolition. So basically the healing, basically it's all about the healing of racialized trauma for like all bodies, black bodies, bodies of culture, which is like how he defines books of color and then, and then white bodies. Yeah. And he so well articulates, particularly like when we were, he kind of guides the people through these somatic releases. So they're talking about their pain and their, the trauma and stuff. And he, he consistently articulates how for BIPOCs, and co-conspirators being in these white supremacist cultural spaces are is dangerous and that the feelings of fear that we have are like really valid because these aren't safe spaces you know and he's really he's really great about articulating that particularly for folks of color because we're we're not alone and then when we when we go into these spaces you know our amygdala gets gets triggered mm-hmm. because these are inherently not places of safety and it's not paranoia or anything. This is just the reality. Yeah. You know? and, and the truth is, is that we cannot rely on them to create our spaces, our safe spaces. Right, right. right? We have to create them right. ourselves. We've right. been creating mm-hmm. them amongst ourselves, among BIPOC right. people. But then I think the next step is to assert that we are creating our own safe space in the public dialogue. They do not get to own the entire public dialogue and all the public space. Mm-hmm. And then we can only go back to like our own spaces to feel safe. No, like I think the assertion that I'm trying to make is that we can create safe spaces, you know, maybe pockets of safe spaces within that public space because mm-hmm. they don't get to own all that. They don't get to determine everything that we say and do in that space and that we have to like do it in a certain way, you know, or, you know, or else. Right. So, so I think that, you know, I, I think that it's really I hear what you're saying and that like, obviously people are going to push back. Obviously people are going to be like unconsciously like trying to suppress people, trying to hang on to their advantages, all this kind of stuff. And at the same time, I would say. But just on the unwillingness to for self-reflection is a big, like, I mean, true self-reflection. I, I don't, I don't, I know this is a weird perspective, but I think that it has to become normalized in the public dialogue that we talk about these things so that you cannot escape this conversation. It doesn't matter whether or not you do the work on yourself, you're going to hear it. Just like, you know, we hear about other things, right? So it's going to be part of the normal public dialogue so that no matter where you go, you're going to hear this. If you don't reflect on it personally, fine, that's your thing. I'm not about dragging people into like therapy or self-reflection or doing the work, right? But it's like, if you don't do it, it's going to keep coming up. You know, it's going to be part of what's Mm -hmm. out there. And we're not holding back and keeping it to ourselves anymore, right? So you can deal with it, you can not deal with it, but that's not going to change whether or not, you know, whether or not it's being talked about in that public space. Mm-hmm. So 
Jennifer's not really worried about them people who aren't trying to do the work. They're just going to they're going to keep coming up against that. Right. And eventually either one or two things will happen. Either they're going to run away from it because they're going to say it makes me too uncomfortable. I can't deal with this. Or they're going to start to say, "Okay, maybe I need to start doing a little learning around this conversation that keeps coming up. Or basically, they're going to lose themselves. They're they're just going to become irrelevant over time, right? They're going to, you know, eventually just sort of like fade out of certain roles in the industry, not just because of aging, but because of like people are going to, other people and other white people are not going to be able to engage them with these conversations, right? They're going to start falling behind in terms of like the, you have to have a certain capacity to deal with contemporary issues in the industry and talk about them effectively and be able to like respond, right? If other other white people are saying like, okay, well, we have to start handling this stuff. It's like a person who won't even talk about diversity, right? Like how can they even have a job in the industry at this point? It's become so normalized that if you won't even talk about it and you deny that that's even necessary, you're not going to have a job in the industry, you know? So, I mean, that's the kind of like, I, I'm all about like changing the way we think, right? That, of course, yeah. That, that I think is super important. And it doesn't I, happen because people, look at Black Lives Matter. Yeah. It was a hashtag. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't people going and changing white people's minds. It, it started yeah. as like social media messaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and everything that it's done since then. I, I appreciate your optimism. Jay <laughs> <laughs> says with a little bit of sass. <laughs> I've just, I've just seen some white women hide real successfully in their performance. And and again, talking the talk of, oh, I believe you. I believe in this. I'm behind this. But then behind closed doors, they're doing the exact opposite. Funky riches. Yeah. And it's. Yeah. And they're going to keep doing it. And so like my my perspective, I think I've told Tony before and some other people is that this is this is about a different philosophy, right? About how we do the work. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about this. So our philosophy of Represent Media is that we're not trying to convince anybody. We're not trying to drag anybody into anything. We're not trying to change anyone. It's the power of attraction. The people who want to do this work, white people, other people are going to do it. That's They're going to come along for the ride. And that's pretty much what we're trying to do. The people who are going to resist, it's not our fight to try to fight them. We're not about like fighting people who don't care or don't want to do this. You know, that, that is a huge waste of energy. So there's going to be people who say that they don't want to do this work and it can also change. One of the examples is that there's like a, a large festival, a, a large institution, California Film Institute. They put on Mill Valley Film Festival. They're like yeah, the biggest festivals around. Yeah. And yeah. so basically um, three years ago, we went to them with this conversation and maybe two years ago, maybe three by this point. And at that point, literally there were staff there who said, well, we would like to support this work you're doing, but it would have to come from the top and we're not there yet. Right. So literally telling us that, like, they're not at the point to actually talk about the things that we're talking about in the article, to be able to support that work, to be able to publicly come out and say they because they're like internally, they're conflicted. They couldn't even like, you know, do their own work to begin dealing with this deep stuff. And so they couldn't support our work. And now this year, because of the changes that have been happening there, we have a panel at their fall festival on this very same work. It did not happen by trying to argue with anyone, convince anyone, do anything to anybody. They they went through their own process that is still ongoing, you know, that that kind of led to the point where it was possible for this to happen. I didn't chase them. You don't have to convince anyone. Let the people who hear what you're saying, like, build the momentum and come with you, you know? Yeah. You don't have to fight anyone. The people who are in the back rooms talking shit about you, you don't have to do anything 
with them or about them at all. And the change will still happen. In fact, it'll probably happen without them. <laughs> you know, think of like, they just had that picture of the little girl, you know, going to segregated school, surrounded by people, you know. There are still people who are probably the descendants of the people who are protesting her going to that school who still believe the same shit today. And yet society has changed all around them. Yeah, They were not needed to participate in order for the change to happen. Let, let go of the people who are not going to get it. That's what I say. <laughs> you know, welcome those who are along for the ride and let go of those people who are going to be, there's still going to be people who look at that picture of the little girl and say, yeah, she should have never gone to that school. Now we're in a mess because of it, right? Right. Still today. Still saying the same shit, you know? Right. <laughs> they have not changed one bit. You know, them, their descendants, other people. We don't, we don't need them. We don't need them in order for the change to happen. I hear you. I yeah. Hear- <laughs> yeah that's the shift right that's the shift sure. we have to change our own perspective white supremacy culture tells us that we need them we don't we don't need certain people at all yeah it's totally possible without them that's I, like our own internal decolonization right absolutely. how do we convince those well meaning white people we don't have to convince them actually <laughs> how do we convince those well meaning white women who are stabbing us in the back we don't I like the idea of just moving them aside and getting rid of them. It's like, yeah, like getting rid of them, like outing them, yeah, letting letting them go. Yeah, we don't even have to get rid of them. They will continue to actually even be there, and the change will happen. Think about how powerful that is, right? Let go of the idea that we need their permission for the change to happen. No, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. But but and we get to see some karma coming around. <laughs> That's a different question. That's about vengeance. <laughs> right? We're so conditioned. We're so conditioned that even in our own work to like do this work and to empower ourselves, we still keep looking to them for the answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? They, they don't have anything to do with this process of change. There will be white people who actually get it and who want to come along and do this for themselves. Yeah. And those are the people that we work with. The other women, I, I swear to God, like, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, they'll still be there doing that thing. Just different women, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to worry about them. <laughs> uh, you go ahead and go the way of the dinosaur, hopefully. Yeah, I guess I get, I, I you know. I just get that feel. I like stop giving them money. Stop like no, you know, like no, I want to be their barrier. You know, <laughs> I hear what you're saying. You know, I hear what you're saying. But all the all the rest will change. Where the money goes will change. Who has power will change. You know, there'll still be some of them. You know, it's fine. You know, everything will change around them, and they don't have to do a thing, and we don't have to waste our time and energy on them. Isn't that like really free? You don't have to struggle with those women ever again. Just let them go. They will do their thing into eternity. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yes. You know? (laughs) I mean, it's hard because you have this attachment to like, that that's how it was really, really interesting. The 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 seminar that I went to that totally changed my thinking around this. I can I can bring up the guy's name. He's actually like a therapist, a, a psychologist. Yeah. But he actually said, you know, one of the things that's like one of the tragedies of like kind of like racial, the whole thing that's happened around race and slavery and other stuff in this country, especially with black people, is that and I think this spills over to other, you know, people of color too, 
is that he was talking specifically about black people. He's a black man. He said, you know, we have been so trained to take care of white people's feelings. Mm. We always go out of our way to make sure they're okay, to make sure that, you know, like we're okay with them, to make sure that like they have what they need, to make sure that even when they do something wrong, we're trying to see if they're okay. You know, we're always catering to them. It is so deeply ingrained for us to serve them and take care of them. And he basically said, we need to stop. Stop it. Like, just stop. You don't need to do that anymore. I mean, it's hard, but it's just like, he's like, that is part of the oppression that happened. That is part of the legacy of slavery is that, you know, always look to the white people and see how they can be okay. See how we can make them okay with us. It's like, he's like, we do not need to do that. It's a safety thing because, you know, if you didn't do that, it could be dangerous. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's still that still happens today. Absolutely. I mean, even in my my interactions with evil, since I knew how awful she could be to other people, like I wasn't foolish enough to think that I would be free from that. But you know, I would always kind of like, okay, what kind of space is she in today? You know, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Like minimize my contact with her. Not out of fear. It's just I just don't have to deal with that bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Also, yeah. Like I needed for a minute that I needed a job too. So yeah. Yeah. So totally there's such deep and historic and legitimate reasons why that conditioning is so strong. And what he was asking is like for us to think about in what situations do we not need to do that? And we're just doing it because it's what we're used to doing, right? But there's actually no danger. There's actually no threat of retaliation. There's actually no consequence. So in those situations, stop doing it. Like try to Try to force yourself to stop doing it in those situations, right? With these, maybe there's specific relationships you have with these women that you're talking about, specific women you're thinking of in mind. And maybe there is some consequence of like, just, you know, not caretaking their feelings and being okay with them in some way, right? But maybe there isn't actually, and it's just a habit, you know? So, I mean, it's not to be foolish in situations where there's a legitimate like consequence and there's the deep legacy of like violence, just straight up violence, you know? To, to put people in their place that they don't comply. So there, all this is real. And also to free ourselves, we have to think about when do we not need to do it anymore? And when is it okay not to do it anymore? And when can we just like let them be and stop saying, I have to somehow get on the same page with them or get them on the same page with me, right? Because we have to be okay. No, sometimes it's just like, <laughs> leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's, gonna, that's a huge part of my nonprofit recovery. <laughs> uh, nonprofit recovery. Yeah. So I, I totally, I totally hear you. I totally hear you. Like I have gone through so much of this stuff and it just, it, it continues. I still catch myself. It's deeper. It's ongoing. It's like the healing, you know, and just continuing it's to. really interesting. I mean, especially you know? for the film industry, because I know in, you know, back when I began, I remember reading books about the idea of coming to Los Angeles and, and working in the industry and, and what the expectation of like what you're going to be doing in the beginning. And a lot of it was about, I mean, things of just like horrific things of, you know, just working for somebody who will not eat and you have to make sure they eat and like things like just create this, just the idea of what a good assistant is or mm-hmm. You know, things like that. It's so much around this idea of caring, of, of taking care of somebody else's mental needs or their mental state or yeah. so many of the roles in the film industry are about that. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's a weird, what are the boundaries of that? Right. And like, 
but also like how, what that fed into what I thought it was going to be like to enter into this business, right? Like the expectation was for me to then serve. Like yeah. I was like, oh, okay. So for me to get places, I'm going to have to serve. Yeah. And, yeah. and my, people are rewarded the opposite, right? Yes. People are rewarded for serving, for caretaking, for like yes. being the good one, right? You know, for, for, for yeah. overexerting yourself, for to give everything you have, right? Like that's, that's the expectation. So it's, yeah, it's a special, I, I hear you. I got you. Yeah. 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 I, I hear you too. I hear you too. It's a journey. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a journey. I mean, I have, I have stuff too, you know, but it's just yeah. like, you know, I might be a little bit further down the road, but it's like, it's, it's ongoing, you know, it's, it's really insidious and it's really yeah. subtle and it like infects, infects you in so many ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really fortunate to have, you know, listened to this person who was talking about like, you know, what are our responsibilities as, as people who are on the other side on the press side of that power dynamic, right? There's things that, that we need to do as well. And I think that, um, the courage to be more honest with ourselves, you know, yeah, and, and to really look at this stuff and it's just, and it can be painful. Like I'm at the point where it doesn't really pain me, but for some people to realize that they've been doing that and they've had to do that and they felt like that they had to caretake, they had to set aside, you know, you know their own dignity to like caretake taking, white women's, like you know, taking taking yeah. advantage of people's altruisms, you know, a lot of yeah. It. It's really it's a really painful thing to realize yeah. that that they've gotten sucked into, you know? Yeah. So there's all that, right? Like the dealing with the trauma of like, I had to be this way or they're going to punish me or they wouldn't give me things. They're like, you know, it's just, it's horrible. You know? I, I I always recommend Steve Hassan's book, The Power of Mind Control, but it's so much, he has a book because he was in the Moonies and he left the Moonies, but it's like so much about the dynamics of like cults and all of that. It's so similar to like being in the film industry and like even working in nonprofit because it's, 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 your your own universe, right? And you think that it's all doing all these greater things, these greater goods, but then there's like this real secret insidious inner core or most of the time and it's a whole thing. And then there's like you say, there's power structures and then there's like the social psychologies of the like things, the plays that we put on each other and then just the whole thing. Nonprofit world is and it's okay for that to happen because it's nonprofit, right? You'd say the, the expectation is that like, you know, it's a little less, it's not corporate. So there's a little bit of a lot of these, especially even like the one we came from, a lot of these institutions, they don't have a structure of like human resources or like, you know what I mean? Infrastructure actually facilitate safe spaces, I can say. So like, and not even if they do, those things aren't, those those departments are set up to protect the, the organization and not its people. And like, you know, it's just a whole, it's a racket. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, I think it's pretty well known, but we don't talk about it, but the, the roots of charity and the roots of documentary are based in this sort of like colonial view and this like, you know, sort of like very patronizing view of people who are less fortunate or who are even in documentary people who are subhuman, who yes. are like, you know, somewhere between human and animals, right? Like this other kind of human that's somehow lesser than us. So yes. we have to go and observe them and we have to go and see what they're up to and what are they really like and that sort of thing. And on the on the side of charity, it's always been this idea of like, well, you have to give to the less fortunate or they'll revolt against you. And so this is a way of both controlling them and helping them, but also pitting them in a weird way, you know, so that the, they aren't as fortunate as you. So there's this like bizarre sort of like cultural dynamic that both charity and documentary film are are founded upon 
that we also don't talk about because just like how this country was founded on like slavery, genocide and like, you know, you know, basically like human trafficking and all other kinds of crazy stuff. You know, I guess I would say a dumping ground for criminals, you know, people who had been convicted of crimes. Honestly, a lot of the white people were like, you know, anyways, that's whatever. But, you know, a lot of you had a lot of criminals, people who had, you know, like sort of socially, not to say they can't be rehabilitated, but they had like sort of socially unacceptable, right? Like personalities. Yeah. A lot of them founded this country. So basically, like, this is the best that we're in now. And so how can we not look at how both charity and documentary have these legacies? Yeah. You know, we, we don't talk about them. We, we pretend as if, oh, it's just an, these are both practices that are somehow benign and, like, helpful or, like, trying to do good in the world. We don't look at, it's like we've erased the history of these things. Oh, you no. Know, and where they came from. Yeah. And, you know, who does that serve, right? So I could go, I could go on and on, but I'm just like, these are the real problems, right? Like, we need to talk about the real problems and not just like be like, oh, we need more diversity. Can we get some more people hired in here? Yeah. You know? I think m- m- the majority of my hopes of what will come out of this is that these large institutions will no longer be relevant, like you say, and that like that the funding entities will recognize that it's, you got to go directly to the communities themselves. They know themselves the best. So like stop funding these large institutions to do the work. That's just wasteful work. Yeah. I mean, the best suggestion I had for someone about what to do about the Sabaya situation, right. And with Yazidi women. And the terrible thing is that there's another film that's being made by a Dutch filmmaker that's being supported by the, whatever the Dutch film fund going on right now. It's just like, it's just more of the same bullshit. Yeah. But, I thought too about easy people. That's it. This was sponsorship, which shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. And basically like the, the, there's a person who does economic development, you know, in other countries. And she basically said the, the long-term solution is that the foundations and other people need to give money to start a fund for Yazidi people to make their own films. And to basically like learn how to make films if they don't have the skills, you know, for the filmmakers who are, you know, from that background to, you know, to be able to have some more support. She's like, until that happens, people are going to keep coming in and wanting to like say, oh, well, nobody knows what's going on. So I have to make that film. So she says until the people themselves are creating their own media, she's like, this problem will not stop. So there's a lot to be done. And, you know, hopefully there'll be, you know, some people who come along for the ride other than us. (laughs) But if they don't, we'll just leave them behind. (laughs) Yeah. Bye bye. Yeah. 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 It's it's yeah. sad. It's sad because you know, it's sad because in some ways, like I grew up in a really white suburb. Yeah. And it's and it's sad because you feel like you wish that you wish that people that you have a certain amount of contact or familiarity with could somehow like somehow you could be part of a community. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially if you spend a lot of time around people, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's people I grew up with, people in work, you know, industry people, whether you feel like if we spent this amount of time together, shouldn't we be able to form a community? And unfortunately, mm. that's not always possible, you know? Mm. Yeah. We had to form a community of like-minded people. So, yeah. yeah. Not, a, not always, the points don't always, yeah, like that. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of sad because in a way, like, you literally have to leave people behind as you evolve, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I grew up in a, a tiny town in the mid in the Midwest in Southern Illinois. I, you know, it's so, yeah, I know sometimes yeah. you gotta like as much as you would want to hope to, you know, have that familial connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, our ideologies don't match. I kind of put them in a group. I, I call them well-meaning white people. 
Yeah. There's a lot of well-meaning white people. But, like, they mean well, but like somehow it just doesn't, you know, that doesn't translate but to necessarily right action. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think that I think people are at different parts of that journey. And I've seen some people grow from there, but it's something inside of themselves that they do grow from there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not something that we can, you know, it's not like you can water them and they can, you know, and then they start growing. It's like, because yeah. like whatever is going on with that process, it's kind of not caring for them anymore. <laughs> you're going to need water and sun and you'll grow into like, you know, more like enlightened, you know, a person. No, it's, not, you know, that's funny. <laughs> they, they have a lot themselves already. I'm I'm just curious about like, yeah, I'm more curious about how can you and me and Tony and other people, how can we, how can we understand the ways we've been programmed and to continue to deprogram ourselves? If it's be like being in a cult, there's yeah. still, there's a lot of deprogramming to do. You know? Yes, I'm telling you. <laughs> bite model is very interesting. Steve Hassan's bite model is very good. <laughs> I mean, what does he, does he have a section on that? Like, what do you do when people are, you know, how do you like either get them out or once they're out, how how do you, how do you deprogram them? Yeah. There's a conversation about how you talk about, talk to people to get them out. And it's, it's like, it's a matter of, you don't want to become their enemy. You like, you always want to come from a place that I'm listening. I'm hearing you, but. But um, he talked, he talks about. Like, particularly in the context of cults, it's like helping people remember who they were before the cult. Yeah. Mm. Like, in the case of white supremacy, that has always been there. Right. I'm just like, you know, hey, that's not going to work with white people because they've always been in the cult. Because like, <laughs> we were born into the cult. Right. <laughs> grabbing, helping them to imagine themselves without the cult. You know? I guess that's the probably that's probably the only thing, right? They've never experienced anything other than that. And yeah. so that's why on some level, actually, to be honest, I sort of feel like if someone hasn't grown up like in a in a bi or multicultural environment, they may literally be incapable of understanding like our experiences because they literally cannot conceive of what it means that what they experience is not just the norm all the time in every situation. Mm-hmm. It's just like they don't have that actual lived experience kind of like when you're a kid you know it's much easier to learn a language if you try harder as an adult you will be able to learn a language but it's just like it's just going to be really difficult yeah Yeah. i don't know i think that's laziness i think it's laziness because i i personally i grew up in a you know again you know predominantly white Mm -hmm. Uh, was i i did not have a person of color in my high school yeah not a single person probably um that's like me through like grade school mostly you know there's maybe one person like in my fifth or sixth grade yeah. <laughs> but i'm not saying that you know i'm not saying that i completely understand everyone else's experiences for sure not for sure but like i can at least i can at least identify there are points where i know that i can identify and and can it, i have fucking compassion and like people just like just cry like just like work on that compassion part of you like i don't i okay here's a here's a, here's an even more controversial opinion is that some people get on me about for real they said i believe that people who are extremely privileged and white people actually suffer they suffer from their privilege and the white supremacy 
they suffer in a way that, and people are like, but what are you talking about? If they're rich or if they're white, blah, 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 what kind of suffering could they, they suffer from this exact thing that basically they have an inability to connect with other people and they have an inability to experience like the depth and the richness of life. They've actually lost something. They're incapable of doing certain things as well as other people. And that's actually like a, a loss to their character and their spiritual development. So it, th- they experience a form of poverty, but it's not the kind of thing, it's not a material poverty. They're actually lacking or missing something also. They're not getting away scot-free. It's not like they're like, oh, la-di-da, everything happy. I mean, think about, it's it's evidenced in the fact, like, I mean, you're probably going to think this is not related. All the all school shooters and serial killers, they're predominantly like upper middle class white environments, predominantly. They know that something is wrong and they're missing something, right? Yeah. There's there's like an, an epidemic of that in like well-to-do white communities. Why? Yeah. They are they have lost something because of participation in this. Yeah. They are actually being harmed, but the harm is in a very different way than with other people, right? And people hate on me for that because they're like, oh, why are you saying they're being harmed? I don't want to hear that. Like, you know, I don't have a everybody. Uh, everyone is harmed by white supremacy. Everyone yeah. is harmed. By yeah. Them. I mean, yeah. it's the loss of loss of humanity. And yeah. in the case of the, the school shooters, it's like they can't, they have the inability to see them themselves and then how that, how they perpetuate that. Particularly like, because, you know, there's someone that have a pathologizing other people. Yeah. You can't pathologize, like can't put together like, oh, like look at who all who's doing all these shootings. Like maybe we have a problem. Yeah. You know? Right. And they have a problem because of that, the impact of white supremacy. Because right. it's it's exactly. taking it's taking something from white people. And I think right. until the majority of white people understand that they are actually being harmed by white supremacy and they're losing something fundamental to their own like human experience. Yeah. At that point, that's when they're gonna start taking responsibility and making change on this, right? When it when it occurs to uh, not the majority, but maybe a significant minority, right? Just like every social change thing is a small group of people, you know, getting activated. Once once enough of them start to realize this is hurting us, we've actually lost something. This is our problem. This is not a problem of those other people. It's actually our problem. Then we'll but, see substantial change. When, when we talked about language earlier, so in one of my students I had, I had to she she made this comment about how people are are doing something to someone because they're because they're black. And I I went in and I corrected that. It's like, no, they're not doing something to someone because they're black. They're doing something to someone because of their negative perceptions of what black means. Yeah. 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 No. And I, I've, I've had that discussion with like a lot of white folks and they freak out by that just reframing of that language. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, like, yeah. And I remember I got into a Facebook discussion. It was like on a Facebook thread where I was commenting about something, something racist that happened to me when I was like five or something. Mm-hmm. And her comment was like she felt sorry for me and how bad I must have felt, and I was like, no, I don't, I don't feel bad because it wasn't about me. Yeah. So like, like this idea that I should have, so she kind of backtracked, but this idea that I should have shame because someone saw me in a particular way, rather than taking responsibility for their own perceptions, yeah, and for their perceptions. perceptions. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, no, it's not me. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I misspoke. I see. Yeah. Even so, even in your idea of helping, helping me feel better, you still have this little kernel of like, I have, 
that white is better because if someone is projecting perceptions on you, then that's actually who you are. Yeah. Versus, yeah. versus the perception. Yeah. So like like even with that little bit of shift, people are like, ooh. Yeah. That, that could be too yeah. much for folks. So like yeah. Yeah, I mean the 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 positioning of being the vic you know of victimizing you and then right. that that them having dominance over you because you're put into a place of victim, right? And like right, right, yeah. But also, I mean, but also, I have no issue with like being because sometimes being a victim because sometimes you you are a victim. That's a fact. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. But also, I know I'm not the cause of my victimhood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like I mean, that's I'm not, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not the cause of the victim. Well, we did it to Tony because Tony deserves it, right? Basically, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, no, like, what could change? Like, my blackness cannot change, but your perception of the blackness can. So, what's the problem? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times it's like there's there's a lot to be said for, like you said, this mind control and this cult mentality, and like. Because, you know, my heritage is like Chinese, you know, I look at what happens in China and it's like they understand the importance of that. I mean, I'm not down for how they're doing it, but it's like they're willing to imprison and like kind of do all these things to people, torture people just to get them to think differently. That's all. They're not trying to they're not actually trying to kill them. They are trying to like whatever, reduce the population in a way. That's not good. But it's like they're not literally most of the time uh, like China doesn't try to go out of their way to kill people. They try to change their thinking. That's like their biggest tool is to change the way that people think and what they believe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they understand the power of thoughts. And somehow, you know, like for us, I think that's something I'd like to see more in the documentary is that like that is incredibly powerful. That's one huge way that this white supremacist culture continues yeah. because we're all mentally conditioned to like keep going down that same path, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then on top of that, people start, of course, like retaliating when you don't go down that path. They're like, whoa, whoa, where are you going? Where are you going? Stay on the path, you know? (laughs) We're going to stay on this path of white supremacy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I feel very uncomfortable if you go off over there. (laughs) So it's like, you know, it's not with like whatever, like sticks and stones and bullets and, you know, like, you know, whatever, all the other terrible things, you know, (laughs) like, it's more it's 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 definitely something more insidious because maybe if work if we're bullets and being in prison well maybe that does happen here too but it would be easier to identify versus passive aggressive that shifts to aggressive thing it happens you're just being a troublemaker what they're saying is like oh my god they're breaking free of this like why is it prevents this way of thinking (laughs) that's actually that's actually the definition of <laughs> they're causing trouble <laughs> they're freeing themselves oh my god <laughs> i'm gonna get back in and quit <laughs> so so i mean you know and it's great to pair with tony because tony's always like what can we do what are they going to do where are they going to have actions around and let's create some resources which i think is great because i think i'm more i'm more on the end of like changing awareness and thinking and then tony's much more like okay let's do something which yeah. i think you need both you need yeah. health, you know, to happen. Yeah. But, you know, but but I think my emphasis is just like always on that part because I don't I don't hear that much. You know, people are like, what do we do? I'm like, no, we got to we gotta change the way we even like talk and think about this stuff. We're not even talking about the right stuff. How can we how can we solve the problems when we're just barking up the wrong tree? You know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. This has been good. I, I know that there's probably more stuff that could be talked about. And I hope there's enough in, in the stuff that we did talk about that, you know, you can have something or oh, for helpful sure. for your podcast you know i'm just so curious for now i don't know much about your background actually i mean oh, yeah, you just kinda, 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no, I I I were me and Tony met each other at IDA. So I was at IDA for okay. the, like eight years. So I worked in I oversaw educational programming and I was one of the lead programmers for getting real, good and bad. But yeah, so and then I also oversaw the IDA awards. My last year there I was overseeing the IDA awards for various reasons. But yeah. And did you sort of like come to it? Like, were you sort of doing films? Were you working for a production company? Or the, I, I'm from Chicago. I'm originally from okay. Chicago. And I was a, I came, I studied documentary film at Columbia and Chicago and knew all the folks up there and was just realized, graduated from school, realized I didn't understand the business because they don't teach you in the business mm. in film school. Yeah. Yeah. And wanted to come out to Los Angeles because I had a friend who was living out here and she offered me her couch. Mm. And, so I just came out here and got an internship at IDA and then suffered through all of it. <laughs> Learned a lot. It was great. You know, there's a lot of good things that came out of it. But there was a lot of a lot of trauma out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the culture there is just kind of whack, basically. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, they're dealing with that now. You've been trying to, like, change yeah. it. It's, like, yeah. really difficult because, yeah. 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 It's like what you said. It's like. Until we have these conversations outright, it's just it's just going to perpetually keep happening. So, like until they have that conversation outright of what is happening there, what is actually going on, (laughs) (laughs) happening. So yeah, yeah. So then, so then you moved on from there, and then you're doing this podcast with Tony, and then you know what else are you focused on? Oh, I work I work with this organization called One in Four, the One in Four Coalition, where it's a it's a it's just me and my my colleague Grishma Shaw, but then there's 10 founders and they're all from various positions. So and they all have disabilities. Everybody has a disability. Okay. Um yeah. so you know, like one of them, one of my colleagues, she's the head of per she's head of head of production for Shondaland or Aaron Brown. She's a she's a she's a manager and she's like, for instance, she's representing Spencer. So it's all these folks where like really like important positions in the industry coming from different angles mm-hmm. that are, you know, we're all singled at one goal is to change and change the representation of pe- folks with disabilities and in Hollywood. And as well, one of our main objectives, though, is getting people work, getting people jobs mm-hmm. in the industry. So, so that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really great. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's we're it's a very collective group. So like we come at everything so collectively, which is like, so refreshing and I really enjoy it. So yeah. 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 That's a good change of pace. I mean, sometimes, yeah, you just have to find, you know, where you, where your heart leads you into the, yeah. you know, into yeah. the work that speaks to you, the environment, the people, you know? Yeah. I mean, I kind of started this thing with a co-founder represent media a few years ago, actually five years ago now. And then at one point, you know, it just, things happen. And so she kind of split off to kind of focus more on her own work and stuff. Yeah, there's always been this sort of loose group of women who are sort of supporting, you know, who are here in Oakland. And but the more I think I in the beginning, it was kind of almost a thing where it felt like, okay, like what you're doing is sort of out there. But then since then, so many things have happened, you know, like all the protests and all the conversations in the industry. Now it finally feels like, okay, there's more people who are actually, you know, like kind of on that same path for a while. It kind of felt like what are you guys doing out there? You know, we're all set up. We're all set up. <laughs> and then, and then I see the momentum behind stuff. Like, you know, I mean, you know, like what's by, yeah. I mean, it's seven months later, you know, yeah. af- after the film and the film had already been sold. So it was kind of like, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. And now it's like right away, you know, there's like the thing, you know, coming out with like, do you have rehab? And I was like, Oh, like, 
it's it's gratifying to see like okay there's more people like going down this path now and who are just trying to like do that advocacy work in the industry and trying to speak up and also trying to support yeah other people and just like we like you know we can't just like sit on the sidelines while all this stuff keeps happening over and over again you know and that's happened forever it's not you you know this kind of stuff this kind of programming the kind of like you know the the racism you know the stuff in the you know we got idea yeah oh we gotta go we gotta go okay okay yeah sorry yeah great talking to (laughs) y'all yes wonderful to talk to you (laughs) yeah okay all right you soon jennifer see you next week take care all right bye thank you so much for listening today and if you like this special episode please share it with a friend who's dealing with current or even post-traumatic nonprofit syndrome